0: Hey, folks, I am so excited to have David Kahlo coming up on the DealQuest podcast. Uh, David and I have known each other for, I don't know, I think it's over a decade now. And uh, he is a IP attorney, but really an IP strategist now. So we talked about IP and deals and some cool stuff around that. David, you want to give them a little preview on what they're going to hear about on your episode of Deal Quest?
1: I think what they're going to hear about is why IP strategy matters. People have some sense that there are patent trademark copyright trade secrets out there, but I can do it tomorrow. I don't really have the budget to do it. It's secondary or tertiary. It's not really important. And I hope we've made the case that A, it really matters and B, if you treat it as if it matters, you can be richer and more
0: successful than you'd otherwise be. I love it. And, you know, we also talked about the uh, different range of companies and types of things, you know, who can use it and uh, the fact that it is underutilized in a lot of situations, right? Not only the IP, but licensing deals, things like that as well, right?
1: Yes. And especially the thinking about it. Almost everyone has trade secrets and trademarks, whether or not almost everyone actually has copyrights as well, whether or not they have patents, but they aren't really focusing on what's my sustainable competitive advantage. Why should anyone even bother buying from me? Why should they pay a non-commodity price? Why should anyone invest in me in the hope of future profits? if I don't have something to make me special.
0: Love it. So check out David's episode on DealQuest. A lot of great stuff and some good stories as well. Do you want your business to grow faster? Are you open to new and out of the box ways to drive revenues and increase value? How do you imagine the most successful entrepreneurs and business leaders double, triple, or expand their businesses tenfold or more? The answer is deals. This is a weekly podcast featuring conversations with business owners, executives, and leaders as we reveal behind the scenes details that give you, our listeners, the confidence to pursue your own deal-driven growth. On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions, to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for 35 years, as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, Find and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the Deal Quest podcast. Let's get started. David Kahlo is a University of Chicago law graduate in 1976. He was a general litigator before focusing exclusively on intellectual property. In 1996, he started his own new IP law firm continuing the litigation, diligence, licensing, and protection of patents, trademarks, copyrights, and trade secrets. And in 2013, he started a solo practice focused on IP strategy. David and I have known each other for, I don't know, probably close to a decade. And uh, he is really a, uh, I, I like the way his brain thinks because he's not just a lawyer and not that there's anything wrong with that. But as a dealmaker and a business guy and whatever, I, I loved uh, sort of the way he thinks about leveraging intellectual property, including in deals. So, David, I'm thrilled to have you on the Deal Quest podcast. I am thrilled to be here. Thank you, Corey. Fantastic. So listen, before we get into all of the great stuff that you do for folks and the insight you have on intellectual property and deals and strategy, I want to take you back to when you were growing up as a little kid, 8, 10, 12 years old. What did you want to be? Because my guess is an IP lawyer and strategist wasn't it at that age, but maybe I'm wrong. You tell me.
1: I think the goal was to be a space pirate. I read a lot of science fiction and I knew that someday I would command my own space vessel, either as an honest trader or rating on others.
0: <laughs> I love it. I love it. And what was your first deal of any type you can think of, whether it was something small when you were younger or something early in your career, whatever comes to mind?
1: I was a very nerdy guy. I thought I was going to be a scientist or a physicist. I wasn't the business person, you know, from day, age 12 that I would like to be. So I had to learn deals slowly and academically, as opposed to a lot of the people that you have on your shows that are just great entrepreneurs and business people. And the most interesting deal was, of course, starting my own law firm. And then later, you know, almost 20 years later, starting my own solo practice, because
0: That's being an entrepreneur, not just helping entrepreneurs. Love it. So let's hop in because a lot of folks, I mean, certainly people come out of biotech spaces, uh, you know, various kinds of uh, specific, you know, areas, whether it's manufacturing processes, chemical processes, things like that, you know, they may be more familiar, but most businesses out there, I think at least, I mean, and I'll just give my opinion, you can tell me whether you agree or disagree really just don't fully understand and underestimate the value and the ability to leverage intellectual property. Thoughts? My thought is that most people are not
1: taking advantage of ways of making themselves more successful and more valuable by using IP. And I fully agree with you that there's any sector broadly that does pay attention to it and does use it pretty well. Though believe me, I've seen mistakes there too. It's the pharma, medical device, biotechs that hope to go into that. That's an area where they at least appreciate that it's important, even though, sadly, mistakes that, that are avoidable could... We're all going to make mistakes. I make mistakes every day. I just want clients to make new and better mistakes, not the same old <laughs> right. avoidable mistakes. Right.
0: But by, you're right. Pharma is the place where you often see best practices. So let's talk about who could leverage IP, because on this uh, show, on this podcast, I often have a general premise, not related to IP, but related to deals that, you know, there's a misperception that it's only the big companies that can do deals. You know, it's that deals aren't just big M&A and financing deals, but there are all kinds of deals that can be done affiliate and licensing and joint venture strategic alliance. And that, you know, a company of any size can do some sort of deal. What's your view as to that conversation, specifically as it relates to IP, or are there only certain size or types of companies that really can do, can leverage intellectual property? You know,
1: in some ways, the most important for the startup, the entrepreneur, the small company, because in many ways, and for most of these companies, that's all you have. You know, as a lawyer, you know that we tend to split up the world into three types of property, land or so called real property, personal property, factories and equipment, and then intangibles, the stuff you can't see, taste, you know, the, the ideas, creativity. And most of the companies today are not based on owning a valuable piece of land or a unique factory or equipment inside that. That, That's not what gives them their value. It's intangibles. And without the protection, they don't have size to protect them. They're not some sort of giant brontosaurus that can just stomp on the predators, right? They're little defenseless, hairy new mammals that are (laughs) three inches high. And if they don't use, understand, and appreciate IP... Evolution will take care of them. And it's, and it's so sad because these people are smart. They're solving problems. They deserve to be rewarded. Their investors deserve to be rewarded. And by missing opportunities in IP, at least in the way I think about the world, value is, is wasted, left on the table, not exploited. That's a shame.
0: Let's talk about the, some of the ways that people can exploit that, you know, in, in a good way, that IP. I mean, obviously, you know, there's trademarks, copyrights, patents. Those those are all different things and applicable to different types of businesses. What are some of the ways that you think companies can exploit, you know, a use a license, or whatever the kind of deal is with IP that they're not doing as much as they should be?
1: The way I encourage people to think about this is... By recognizing that they ought to use an appropriate for them blend of patent trademark, copyright trade secret along with along with the big four, whatever lesser rights such as privacy publicity, trade dress plant protection semiconductor chips, design patents, database rights, cybersecurity as part of their trade secret precautions, antitrust standards there's more than the big four, but yes. using the big four as representative, you need to think about. How is that going to work if you have to fight, if you have to litigate not in the hope of never doing it, but of gaming out how that would work? Then looking for licensing type relationships, maybe it's standard setting. maybe it's a big company making a strategic investment in you because they're interested in technology. Maybe it's working with someone who'd otherwise own a key patent that you deed and would otherwise sue you. Lots of possibilities exist. And then getting protection, which is the first-in-time thing, having thought out these later stages, as opposed to saying to the average, fine, honest lawyer, what can you do to protect me? And the answer to that is I can spend an awful lot of money and do all sorts of things that may never pay off for you. And if you aren't thinking the downstream usage of the IP, and the least, most boring, most stupid use of your IP is to be in a litigation. But nevertheless, it's the base case, because if the person on the other side of the table isn't thinking, you know, I would lose a lawsuit, so I better take the deal, whether it's a license or something more interesting and complicated, then you don't have anything to offer. So you have to think through the fight to avoid the
0: fight. So give us a couple of examples where companies have used various types of IP, you know, trade secrets whatever it is. That you know, people might be a little that are not the normal, or that'll get people's you know, brains starting to think more creatively. You have many a rock band that's broken up. You have many a rock band that's
1: signed away their publishing. I had the privilege of representing some of the members of the young rascals as against the others <laughs> looking at this somewhat closely at one point in time. And again, missed opportunities to have these great songs more fully exploited, and more money for everybody because of improper planning, improper usage of the rights. Mm -hmm. You have one of my favorite examples, though, again, it perhaps can be characterized as a core area, DNA synthesizers, which was a revolutionary technology to be able to build a 20 or 30 or 40 piece long of AGCT, you know, whatever you wanted, and you just punch it into the machine, and a couple of hours later, it would come out. used to take several PhDs, several years, sitting around like stirring the pot like Shakespearean witches in order to build these things. And you could imagine when you're trying to cure a virus in real time or deal with other serious conditions, whether they're, you're born with them genetically or it's a bacteria, it's a virus, being able to build the pieces, it's huge technology. And the company had used a combination of patents over the chemistry, the equipment and the valves and the way that was put together the software trademarking it having strategic alliances with leading universities so that improvements would constantly flow in and they originally sued to stop other people from using this groundbreaking absolutely terrific technology and people couldn't settle the technology was too good there was no other way to do it and one of the things that i'm very proud of is i convinced the client to start licensing now at a hefty royalty fee Yes, And for 20 years, they collected royalties on this technology. I think it may still be used today. I mean, it's a really incredible breakthrough. I, I'm sorry they didn't win the Nobel Prize because the people were just, just spectacular who did it. And made it sort of a standard. And again, things got improved. Things moved on. People have invented other technologies. But this one was just terrific. And by using patents and trademarks and using them Across the physics and biology and software and chemistry of the invention, not just looking at it one-dimensional, but a really three-dimensional, four-dimensional look at the IP they were able to do very well for a very long period of time. Philips Electronics, that I had the honor of representing in a couple of small matters, uh, calls their IP department IPN Standards. And they have done a wonderful job, quite brilliantly. Uh, CD-ROMs are an easy, famous example where they set a standard with Sony and for years. You know, all the computers had those things that you could joke about. There were cup holders. And, this you know, everybody's CD could run everyone else's machine and money floating in a very good way. And, and, you know, everybody had a technology. We'd have to buy six different readers. I don't know if you remember all the different backup technologies that used to be out there 20 <laughs> yeah. years. Nothing worked with anything else. It was terrible. And, and they've done that in multiple areas. Um, Cartier, Van Cleef, Pells, the Richmond Luxury Group, managed in their Cartier watches to have such a strong design element for the look of their watches that we were able to litigate with my former partner back when I had the law firm, a trade dress case that even though the counterfeit watches had a different name on them, they were still infringing Mm -hmm. just by the look of the watch. And so they were using trade dress, the appearance of the goods as the trademark in a very
0: creative and powerful way. Great examples. I mean, it's, you know, it's interesting because I had uh, somebody uh, on a prior episode, Bill Cates, I don't remember what the episode number, and he does a lot of licensing as a speaker, much more simple, right? IP, you know, kind of deal, right? You know, as opposed to most speakers who will do a program for somebody. In fact, I I actually just saw a post on on one of the speaker sites, you know, on, on LinkedIn or Facebook, one of those today, where, you know, a person was saying, hey, you know, the client in this virtual world, the client wants to record, you know, my talk and wants to be able to use it going forward. You know, what should I do? And I'm thinking, license it. <laughs> you know, if they want right. to use it, you know, like let them use it. But, you know, for an annual you know, license or wh- whatever it is, and if they don't want to pay it anymore, they can't use it anymore. I mean, you know, uh, people sell off their IP or just do it work for hire on the smaller levels so often. And, you know, licensing is so underutilized in my mind. And it's one of the advantages,
1: obviously, of being an independent contractor having your own operation as opposed to employee. On the employer company side, by the way, you mentioned work for hire. It is one of the great classic traps that work for hire doesn't actually mean, as you you probably know, what it sounds like. If you've hired some guy in India to write software for you, you've hired them, you paid the money, you don't own it. They do, unless you get proper assignment agreements from them. So one of the great simple Checklist things is to make sure you have the right agreements with employees and with contractors to get the IP to flow into the company, right. because even bad due diligence, the, the, the stuff that I fight against is going to detect that flaw and kill off any chance of your company succeeding because you don't own your own rights because you thought it was a work for hire. But you're exactly right. As people create stuff, now that doesn't mean you can't, like, I think uh, Sabin and the polio vaccine, he chose to make it public yeah. domain and give it away. The IP does not require that you be maximally Scrooge and greedy and evil and raise the price of EpiPens to $1,000. And I was just reading the antitrust suit against that. So hopefully it'll be a remedy you know but you can choose to use it in a good way and what you know congress realized uh, 20 30 years ago is that the federal inventions which were open to all no one picked them up because no one had exclusivity and that by in- indeed engaging in licensing to you know one company or a few companies those people then had an incentive to invest in it take you know good basic technology build it out to practical commercial products and everybody won. That's why there's university, you know, licensing departments all over the places, why a lot of these advances exist. Without a property right, you have the sort of, you know, why communism doesn't work, why when the pilgrims landed, you know, everyone would farm, they'd all share the food, and they shared equally. And everyone went, oh, I have a headache. Oh, I don't feel like, I don't get, I know this is true, but it's a wonderful story. I don't feel like working. And the the colony was starving. So they said, okay, each of you get a plot of land and you get to eat whatever you make. Suddenly everybody wanted to work, you know? And I'm not saying (laughs) that IP requires that you not have charity or not be generous, but, you know, there is power in capitalism and private property and ownership. And owning what you create is really, really important. The other thing I want to say about that is, particularly when it comes to patents and software and everything should be public domain, people forget that the real reasons for the patent system in particular is not just to reward the inventors. I'd argue that's the third most important purpose. The second most important is to reward the investors who, without some chance of getting their money back 10x, 100x, You know, they might as well invest in pet rocks or something that's been done before and is safe, you know, to take the chance and then get that. Because inventors will often invent, writers will write, creators will create, perhaps without IP, who knows at what level. But in order to get it to go somewhere and do something and make real world goods and services that make people's lives better, you need the investors. But the first most important purpose of the patent system is to discourage the use of trade secrets and to enrich the libraries and not to have the lost knowledge That goes along with trade secrets, like, for instance, Damascus steel, Roman flexible glass, Stradivarius violins, the Library of Alexander, Greek fire, or the cotton gin mass production methods, all of which were secrets. And then they're lost either forever or for years and years before they're rediscovered. So even bad patents, they're in the, you know, they can put in the libraries. Someone has an exclusive right for 20 years that in God's ultimate judgment they should have had. But still, the knowledge is out there. People can start improving on it, inventing around it licensing it. And if the guy earns a little bit of money, he shouldn't. That's much better than creating incentives for everybody to keep everything secret and not use the patent system. Mm -hmm. So there's a huge public policy issue. But again, the entrepreneur has to live with whatever law we have, good or bad. We have a goofed up patent system, I think, right now that's weaker than it should be. You're stuck with it. So decide what to do across patent, trademark, copyright, trade, secret based on what the law is, not what Kalo thinks it
0: should be. And when you and when you say it's weaker than it should be, what in what ways uh, do you see that? There was a BlackBerry case back in the early
1: 2000s where a small company that invented some basic technology used by BlackBerry in terms of, you know, moving pagers to email and so on and so forth had sued. And BlackBerry, instead of doing an honest evaluation of the patent, saying, okay. You know, might be valid, it might be invalid, it might be this percentage of our profits, here's $10 million, you know, or 5% royalty, whatever the right numbers would be, started wiggling and squirming like like a stuck pig. They were writing editorials in the Wall Street Journal. The patent system is evil. If these guys win, everybody member of Congress is going to have their BlackBerry snatched out of their hands. (laughs) These are patent trolls who lurk under bridges, and they aren't really operating companies. And we're the guys that did everything valuable. And these patent holders are just exploiting this. Now, the plaintiff, which was a small company that was real, to my best understanding, sued in district court, which is not an easy thing to win a patent case, and won. It was taken up to the federal circuit. They won. It was put into re-examination in the patent office. They won a lot. Okay. eventually there was a $50 million verdict, along with the judge saying that BlackBerry's litigation tactics and trying to defend were in such bad faith that the damages would be enhanced or attorney's fees, some other remedy. Eventually, they also managed to get an injunction so that BlackBerry settled for a half a billion dollars. Now, if that had been a U.S. company, I would argue that they just violated Sarbanes-Oxley. By grotesquely mismanaging their assets at the board and CEO level, I think BlackBerry is a Canadian company, and I don't know whether or not SOX supplies. Right. And I thought SOX mismanagement of IP was the next thing, but again, it's complicated. You can't see and taste this stuff. It's not well taught in business school. Accountants don't have a proper, you know, as opposed to the equipment and the land and the tangible assets. Then they go goodwill, everything else. And right. I'm told that you know it used to be eighty percent of this S and P five hundred was intangibles. I've told recently now it's 90%. And you know, most of the interesting new, big and growing companies, big and small, it isn't the land. It isn't the factories. You know, there's Exxon and there's Ted Turner with his, you know, thousands of acres of buffalo and there's, you know, land hasn't vanished. You know, it's been a form of wealth for a thousand years or whatever. Factories and equipment haven't vanished 50 and 100 years ago when you had you know, Rosie the Riveter and B-52s being made by Ford and GM, you know, it was the key to the world. But it isn't anymore. And if you don't have an IP or a tangible asset strategy, you don't have a business strategy because that's what your assets mostly are. And it pisses me off, you know, that they it's not being thought about better. And it's not that hard and it's not that expensive, which are the
0: two... Well, and, and that's the exception, right? Especially on the patent side, people people think it's very expensive, right? And it is more expensive in patents than it is in copyright trademark, that's for sure. And for
1: sure. And there are ways of doing it cheaper. There are ways of starting cheaper. And there are ways of being smart about doing, you know, on an ongoing basis, a little and then a little more and blending it with the other rights and being thoughtful about it. I suppose just getting what's the thing where you stick your fingers in your ear and you go, la, 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 I don't want to right. think about that. You know, I'll think about that tomorrow. Uh, I'll never be hungry again. Holding the carrot and the dressman out of the curtain, going with the wind. You can do stuff at any budget. Indeed, one of the keys to my process is it starts with budget. If you're hundred thousand dollar year spend, maybe some number like 10%, ten percent, ten thousand. I don't know, five percent, twenty percent. You know, some fraction of your total spend should be IP. Start with the number and then build a strategy within it, as opposed to saying again, what can you do for me? Because I can file dozens of patents. I can file them internationally. I can, you know, waste every penny you have and then some. Sure. It's the wrong question. What can you afford? How much justice can you afford, as the New Yorker cartoon says?
0: Let's take a break from the show for a minute so I can invite you to a new way to determine your deal readiness. I created a fast and easy assessment that will determine exactly how deal ready you are. Once you complete the assessment... I use your responses to identify the obstacles that are holding you back from being a deal-driven growth genius. It's as easy as heading to CoreyKupfer.com slash assessment. That's CoreyKupfer.com slash assessment and filling out a few multiple choice questions. I'll be checking in after the episode to see what your results are. Now back to the show. You mentioned patent trolls before and People who are on in this space have heard that term. People complain about them. You know, you sort of um, said this small company with BlackBerry was it was called a patent troll, but, you know, it didn't seem that they were. Talk to me a little bit about patent trolls, because there are real patent trolls out there. Right. There are real patent trolls. Out there. I mean, people abuse stuff. Right. I don't know the actual
1: story of the EpiPen going from you know $100 per dose to $1,000 per dose, but it gives me the sense that the rights there are being abused. And that's probably out of patent because it's now old enough. So people do the wrong thing sometimes. But the patent troll is a way for companies. Well, let's take IBM, for example. IBM long has bragged, we get more patents per year than anybody else. And I am told by smart people who actually read those patents that most of them are quite mediocre. But there are a lot of them. And that means that Fujitsu or Hitachi or General Motors or General Electric, someone comes after IBM and says, You're infringing my patents. IBM can say, Let me look through my thousands and tens of thousands of patents. And I bet you I can find some stuff you're infringing. We aren't going to hurt each other. Let's cut a deal. Right. And this worked great for IBM and now Microsoft, Google, Apple, Facebook, big companies. If you come after them, they'll come after you.
0: It's the IP equivalent of uh, what I learned as a political science major, uh, MAD, mutually assured destruction in in the U.S. and Russia, right, Uh, in the Cold War.
1: Now, in fact, and I'm sorry if this sounds technical, patents are never a right to use or a right to operate or a right to make. They're always a negative, exclusionary right to sue other people for doing stuff, Mm -hmm. which means that when the Wright brothers invented the airplane and... uh, Glenn Curtis invented the better airplane you know, with ailerons instead of warping the wings and retractable or landing gear or wheels instead of skids. No one could make a good airplane. The Wright brothers couldn't make a good airplane because Curtis had the improvement patents. Curtis couldn't make his better airplane because the Wright brothers had the basic patents. And the U.S. rolls into World War I unable to make airplanes. So they forced licenses from everybody. And eventually, these two companies that hate each other and had their hands around the other guy's throat. Created a solution, perfect, you know, deal quest solution that we all know because there's the Curtis Wright corporation. They merged. That's one way of solving these patent problems. But if you're a little company or a university or just a research operation, or you're a guy in your basement and you invent some great piece of software improvement and you sue Apple and Google and Microsoft for stealing your invention, like this little company, which was, you know, 30 people or 50 people sued Blackberry you can't be countersued. You either aren't making anything or you aren't making very much of anything. Your royalties are an infinitesimal fraction of what they have to pay. Or you might have gone out of business. you know, you entrepreneur. You spent a couple of years. You burned through some VC. And now that all that's left is the patent portfolio, which is a pure patent, quote, troll. All you have is this right to assert against others. And suddenly, this huge portfolio that you've accumulated for years, it's like, I don't know, a medieval knight suddenly faced with guns or you know, whatever example you'd like, it doesn't work. And so you're pissed off. So what do you do? You call them ugly, evil, bad guys, you know, scummy contingency lawyers just coming after the companies that are productive, or patent trolls. It's just an insult. And the question in each case is: is this patent or trademark copyright trade secret, whatever's being asserted, is it in fact any good? Do you in fact infringe it? And those answers aren't black and white. They're percentages. But there are plenty of stories of the Apples and Googles and IBMs and GEs and big companies taking a little innovator and saying, eh, we can outweight you. We can outspend you. We're not going to pay you a cent or we'll pay you, you know, one cent on the dollar. All right. And the, the, the intermittent windshield wiper is a great example of that. A movie was even made about it. Yeah, and they I had a terrific firm. In Texas, that I admire greatly. It's one of the reasons I got into this business. Litigate that on contingency and win substantial money. Right? It's just an insult. The big use against the little to say, "Don't bother me." And you really got to be. Now that, which isn't to say that some people aren't abusing it, but there are stories also of IBM, et cetera. So the sure. size doesn't determine the abuse. It's the what you do with it. That's right. That's my
0: view of patent troll. Yeah. Interesting. What else uh, is interesting in the IP world? To businesses today? Any new evolutions? Anything uh, that, uh, you know, trends you're seeing?
1: Well, as part of this patent troll trend, we in the United States passed a reform to our patent law about eight years ago. And this allowed people to go back to the patent office and say, you know what, patent office, you shouldn't have granted that guy's patent. Let's re-examine it. Let's rehear it. Let's have post-grant proceedings. And maybe we can kill off the patent. And Those have been hugely successful for the big companies. Uh, The patent office proceedings are sometimes known as death panels because of a huge invalidity rate. And of course, if you're an entrepreneur that invested very precious money, you know, some very often $10,000, $15,000 to get a good patent application written, you've got a couple of them in there, and then you had to respond to office actions, thousands of dollars, and then suddenly, and the investors invested thinking you had this, right? Right. And so you're upsetting expectations. And one of the things the law should do is not lightly upset people's expectations. And so we've made patents much weaker than we needed to. We also have a series of Supreme Court decisions that I think are, I think are terrible in the sense that the Supremes unsurprisingly are not particularly scientists or engineers or entrepreneurs for that matter, and don't appreciate the patent system. And they use sort of wordplay games without really thinking about the policy implications, so that diagnostics, software, business methods are all either Difficult to patent or impossible to patent or very, very narrow pathway to getting patent in ways that are completely foolish, where you want all sorts of engineering, all sorts of applied science to solve real-world problems. You want there to be patents and have entrepreneuring around that and not just rely on you know, the big five companies or big pharma companies or big anything companies. You want to encourage the constant f- ferment and disruption of, of the entrepreneurship, plus If you're in a ignored or bad neighborhood, if you're a woman, if you're a person of color or racial or bias or whatever, and you can't get a job with one of these big companies, you could start a company. But if you don't have rights to it, you're like the old farmer that after you farm the field, your neighbor comes by and says, that looks nice and takes it. That's not good law. And so people have to be much more creative in how they use patents and trademarks and copyrights and trade secrets to build an IP strategy that makes sense, knowing that it's always going to be tough to be an entrepreneur. Right now, the patent law is weak. People ought to fight to make it stronger again. We've done that. We've gone back and forth with a pendulum over you know, 200 years in this country. You can cope with it, but it, it, it hurts America. It hurts, hurts you know, it makes it more sensible to do things in Europe and China, outside of America, in ways that we, we shouldn't be encouraging.
0: Yeah. You said earlier about, uh, you know, you made the case largely for the societal benefit of patents and, you know, creating some transparency, things that people can build on after 20 years, all that kind of stuff. What are the situations on a micro level where it does make sense for companies to keep something as a trade secret? You know, you, sometimes you hear, uh, you know, and I'm, I'm sure, you know, the easy response is, well, that's, that's a bad patent choice. But sometimes you hear, oh, you shouldn't, you know, file for a patent because it, it does give away, you know, your secrets. What are the situations where it does make sense for companies to keep something as a trade secret and not patent it?
1: There's a series of factors that you think through in terms of, can you detect the other guy's infringement? Is this the sort of thing that patents are being granted for, strong or weak? Is the knowledge going to come out anyway? How much is there going to be pub talk between your employees and theirs where it's going to leak? How good are your security precautions? You, you should use trade secrets a lot as an entrepreneur. And trade secrets and trademarks are too ancient forms of IP. I represented Conan the Barbarian for many wonderful years. Uh, My senior partner did. I got to work on it. I got to read every Marvel comic that came out. Conan's dad, the sword maker, had trade secrets, how he made great swords. He had trademarks, you know, a plaque above his hut that said, Conan's dad, maker of great swords, buy from me, not the other guy. He didn't have patents and copyrights. Those are much more recent creations of statutes. So they've been around forever and they should absolutely be used. And having the right precautions in place and non-disclosure agreements, and most important, not just cybersecurity, but physical security and program you can point to. There's now a crown jewel insurance program that I've talked to the creators of, and it's a brilliant idea. They will, with an automated sort of AI tool, help you evaluate what secrets you have, the precautions, tune it up the way good underwriting do. The same way that for a factory, you know, you should say, oh, get rid of that pail of kerosene over there. It's a danger. Then we'll we'll write you the boss. You know, they'll help you clean up what you're doing, value it. And then if they get stolen, you know, you've got a lawyer to represent you. They'll get you damages. If the other guy goes bankrupt, they'll pay you if the guy publishes them and leaks them. You know, it's a terrific idea. Uh, I want them to extend to all of IP from, from Crown Jewels. But absolutely use trade secrets. Also in areas like software. Where most things go very, very fast, a patent that issues three years from now, by then the technology is obsolete. Not true for spreadsheets, certain forms of database management. There are things that are worth patenting in software, but there are things where maybe you just write your own patent and put it in so you can say, I have a patent and come back to it later if there's money to do it. Do it very, very cheap as just a backup strategy or do it US only so it doesn't publish in 18 months with patent applications usually do, but absolutely use trade. The other thing is imagine you're DuPont and you've invented some new Teflon polypropylene, whatever thing, right? What you should do is take the, you know, the 20 stages of your factory process with different heats and pressures and inputs and this and patent one, three, five, and seven and trade secret two, four, six, and eight. Now you have a group of patents and a group of trade secrets, and neither one being stolen, any one of them, doesn't give you the whole thing. And getting through the whole thicket of multiple secrets and multiple patents really very difficult.
0: One of the last questions I want to ask you here is: We heard in your bio that you went from you know being a partner in in a law firm and focusing on the legal work, and now there's a focus on IP strategy. And you know that last thing you just said is an IP strategy, right? You know we're going to keep right. something. You know. as is
1: applying U.S. only, so it doesn't right. publish. So you can keep the option of treating treat secret or patent. You right. Know? Right.
0: So, yeah, talk about that distinction, like, you know, uh, uh, you know when people come in and, uh, and they want to work with you as a strategist, you know, what is it that you bring that might be different than an IP lawyer who says, oh, you need to file a patent or a trademark, I can, I can put in that application for you. So there are companies,
1: HP comes to mind, a guy named Joe Byers, a longtime engineer, was asked by the CEO president, be our chief intellectual property officer, our CIPO, CIPO. And what I am is a CIPO for hire you know, going from company to company the way you or others might be general counsel for multiple companies. And what I used to do was build castles and battle enemies. You know, I would erect moats, I would dig ditches, I'd shoot flaming arrows into the heart of invaders. What I do now is I architect castles. And I take all of that battle experience knowledge, not just I've read a bunch of books. And I say, here's what we need to do today. So that if we Get faced by the barbarian hordes or invader. We haven't put all the money into the north wall and nothing into the south. We haven't put all the money into the wall, but none into the moat. We haven't dealt the situation where, look, there's a lot of excellent, good, honest lawyers out there. They're going to build the moats, dig the ditches, do all that stuff. But when the lawyer says a three foot wall, thick wall would be good, but four foot thick is better. And a 10 foot high wall is good, but 12 foot is higher. Keep in mind he's charging by the brick. And he's just thinking about the wall. And if you exhaust your entire treasure, the thing you're trying to protect, in spending it on too much wall, you actually haven't done a smart strategy. You've got to triage too much, too little, and then Goldilocks the right amount. And regular lawyers typically exist in a few of the 64 boxes of IP space. Think of a 4 by 4 by 4 patent, trademark, copyright, trade, secret. By litigation, licensing, protection, and deals, by physics, chemistry, biology, software, and design, technologies, activities, and rights. You know, they're biotech litigators, they're music copyright lawyers that do, you know, they aren't looking at the whole thing on a 360 basis. I've had this strange, wacky, odd career where I've jumped around from thing to thing to thing, which puts me in a, if not unique, rare position of understanding well enough almost all of it and appreciating all of it and how to use all of it. And then, by all means, hire regular lawyers to do the right amount of work and the right work. With me as your virtual inside IP counsel coming around to your side of the table saying, what's going to serve you best? Then let's get it done.
0: Love it. So if people want that kind of strategy, help, advice, uh, service uh, that you've so uh, wonderfully demonstrated here, what's the best way for them to uh, get in touch with you?
1: easiest is david at calo.com. I'm also up on LinkedIn and people have messaged me there, which is delightful as well. And if that doesn't work, they should contact you.
0: (laughs) I'll let you know where to find the guy. No problem. Exactly. (laughs) Uh Fantastic. So David, my final question on the podcast is always about my highest value in life, which is freedom. And I probably heard me say this in other contexts where we've had conversations. For me, that applies to freedom from all people, from oppression to the reason I'm an entrepreneur and I you know, don't have a boss. What does freedom mean to you and how does it apply to your business in life? Let me answer that first by saying, having gone
1: now solo, my boss is still an idiot and my employees are <laughs> incompetent, but now it's 100% <laughs> my fault. <laughs> I really am excited about using the IP tools and, and you know, I've, I've put some of them up online. They're there to use, you know, even without me, please just, you go as far as you can with this to enrich people's lives, both in terms of the solutions that entrepreneurs create, which helps, you know, all of their customers and the jobs and businesses and sources of incomes that it creates for the entrepreneurs and their company. To me, it's an absolute good And sort of empowers people to achieve what's important to them, where the entrepreneur can look at a situation. Think of of those Peace Corps jokes where they go into a country and they start building dams or something else totally inappropriate, as opposed to empowering the people to say, what we really need is X. Let's build X. Yes. You know, that type of thing. And, you know, without a job and the self-respect and the production to help others that, that come with that, and you and I have that through our jobs, and we're very lucky. You know, what are you doing with your freedom Um, and how much freedom are you really enjoying? And the more people that can be entrepreneurs and build new and great things, terrific. And these tools help them do it.
0: Love it. David Kaler, thank you so much for being a guest, a wonderful guest on the podcast.
1: (laughs) Not as good as a recent guest. I think her name was Goddess.
0: Anyway, um, (laughs) thank you so much. little little last minute plug there for my wife. (laughs) I love it. Thank (laughs) Thank you so much, David. You bet. Thank you for joining me on this episode of DealQuest, where we help you understand how deal-driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. I want to invite you to a unique way to tap into the wisdom and experience of the DealQuest community. Join the DealQuest Deal Den Zoom calls, a free monthly 90-minute mastermind. In the mastermind, we address all the challenges you may be facing and help support you with the opportunities that may arise in terms of deal-driven growth. You will get input not only from me, but all the members on the call will collaborate and serve each other in a mastermind format. To sign up for the free mastermind, go to www.coreycupfer.com slash deal den. That's coreycupfer.com slash deal den. I'll see you there. I'm Corey Kupfer. Until next week, wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that I know your deal quest will bring.